3: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. Hong Kong, 1958. The music plays as Lee Jun Fan's feet deftly move back and forth. The cha-cha rhythm carries him and his partner across the dance floor. The small crowd cheers. He's graceful and elegant. But there's something they don't know. Tomorrow, his hands and feet will be lethal weapons, able to dispatch hordes of armed men with lightning-quick maneuvers and vicious punches that send challengers sprawling. One by one, he'll mercilessly crush his foes, battering them with fists, feet, wooden sticks, even a pair of nunchucks. Today, he's about to be the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong, but tomorrow, he'll be Bruce Lee. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Badass of the Week. My name is Ben Thompson and I am here as always with my co-host Dr. Pat Larish. Pat, today we are uh, we're talking about Kung Fu movies. Do you have a? Are you a Kung Fu movie fan or do you have a a favorite Kung Fu movie?
4: I don't know if I have a favorite Kung Fu movie per se. I grew up with them in the background. Um, You know, my sister and I would play Legos on the living room floor in front of the TV, and my dad would have on, you know, random movies. And so I grew up with martial arts in the background, Uh, especially the Kung Fu series with David Carradine set Mm -hmm. in the Old West.
3: Oh, yeah. Which is great. Yeah. And The Legend Continues, which was from the
0: 90s.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And I was young and I thought that the Kung Fu moves were kind of funny, but I think I grew an appreciation for them because now... You know, I enjoy seeing Jackie Chan or Michelle Yeoh in a very well choreographed martial arts scene.
3: Yeah. Like when I was just out of college, they used to have and when I was living in Boston, actually, when I was out on Com Ave uh, in Boston, one of the theaters that was maybe like two or three stops away on the T would do midnight kung fu movies. And so every Saturday night, I believe, yeah, at 12 o'clock, they'd show I guess it started at like 11. They'd show one or two Kung Fu movies. And that's how I was exposed to some like really kind of out there stuff from the 70s, like some old Hong Kong stuff. There was a movie called Taoism Drunkard which is just, like, completely bonkers. There's, like, a a woman who fights with her hair as a weapon. and Whoa. Yeah, there's this little, like, robot monster called the watermelon monster that, like, shocks you with, like, its little electric hands. And it's got, like, a... It basically looks like a big robot pac-man and it tries to like bite you
4: okay yeah
3: there was another one i liked it was called the return of the five deadly venoms and it was uh some shaw brothers thing where this bad guy shows up and kills the master of these five kung fu warriors and he cripples all five of them in different ways he puts one's eyes out he cuts one's leg off he cuts one's arm off he does these different things to prevent them from fighting again Mm -hmm. but then they decide they're going to avenge their master and they have all these weird like unique fighting styles because because of uh, the different ways in which they were mutilated by their enemy, uh, which just sounds really gruesome, but it's it's uh, honestly, it's like kind of funny when you watch it.
4: <laughs> and also, if you go into a martial arts movie, you pretty much expect that there's going to be some violent and gruesome content.
3: Yeah, we kind of are hoping for it, right? Yes. You know, like in the old days, it was, you know, there's the style to these, to this old like Shaw Brothers style of 70s kung fu flick, you know, midnight movies kind of thing. But You know, over the years, martial arts has just kind of begun to integrate into every aspect of action filmmaking, right? Captain America yeah. does martial arts now, and you've got John exactly, Wick and yeah. the Fast and the Furious guys all know martial arts, even though they originally started as street racers. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, the Jason Stathams, all these kinds of action movie heroes.
4: Yeah, you've got The Matrix. Yeah, Even in um, recent Star Trek series, uh, Star Trek Discovery, which, okay, features Michelle Yeoh, you do have her using some martial arts moves to beat up bad guys
3: yeah it's a big transition from captain kirk's open hand judo chop and double hammer fist to knock guys out right Mm -hmm. the way that action has been filmed in in recent years is is very different from the way it was filmed back then and we're gonna talk about kind of the reason for that transition yeah
4: yeah now
3: you know I, you know, as a historian, there's always kind of a podcaster and a blogger and all of the things that I that I kind of do. You're always kind of looking for significant dates with which to air your things. And I've generally kind of shied away from from death anniversaries. I don't really like to celebrate Mm -hmm. death anniversaries because I always feel like it's a. It's a little bit weird to talk about that.
4: Yeah, but sometimes, sometimes that's what people do, and think of it as a celebration of a completed life. Is that less grim? It's a milestone, and I'm a fan of classical music, and there's often a way to look for any excuse to have a celebration. So are we celebrating, you know, one year we might be celebrating the 250th anniversary of Johann Sebastian Bach's birth, and then some years later, we might be celebrating the 250th anniversary of his death. And it's really an excuse to or a pretext to celebrate their life and work. Yeah. And that's
3: that's kind of what we're going to do today. Um, So it has been 50 years since the death of Bruce Lee. And he is a, a hero of mine and, a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a film and TV star that I, I really admire and I enjoy his work. And also it just so happens that he's buried two blocks from my house and I, I walk past uh, his, his grave site most, most days uh, when I'm either going up to the store or taking the baby out for a walk. So I, I walked mm-hmm. past the graveyard where he uh, where he's buried. And uh, when we were kind of preparing for this episode, you had told me to stop in and say hi, because I've never actually, I'd never actually gone to his grave before, even though I live there and I walk past it pretty much every day. It's inside of a cemetery and, you know, I don't okay. usually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah. it a little, I'm not going to walk into the cemetery with the baby and, you know, look at that kind of stuff. So. No, no. You
4: know, you kind of need a reason to do that. Yeah. I guess... Uh, I I'm not as phased as much by the idea of going into a cemetery, respectfully of course.
3: Yeah, but I went and I, I paid respects for you and uh Thank and you.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
3: I asked for good uh good luck on our on our podcast episode yeah. today. <laughs> and uh yeah. And it's a very beautiful little spot they have for Bruce and Brandon Lee are buried together there. There always seems to be from what I understand at least, there was when I went there, there always seemed to be little flowers and tributes left behind, which is which is very cool. So in memory of uh, 50 years since the tragic and and very early passing of Bruce Lee, uh, we are going to talk about him. And uh, we are going to get started with that uh, after this.
1: T-I-K-A
0: dot com.
3: In talking about Bruce Lee, I am reminded of a quote that he said. And Bruce, we will see, was uh, never shy. He was a little bit cocky and take that into account as I read this quote. But it's something that needs to be kept in mind when we talk about Bruce Lee. He says, quote, if I were to be completely realistic in my films, you would call me a violent, bloody man. I would simply destroy my opponent by tearing his guts out. I wouldn't do it so artistically.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, you know, we see a lot of, you know, blacklight posters of Bruce Lee, but who was he really? And, you know, is there there's a lot more going on here than just the the, the five real movies and the TV show that we have seen him on. And we're going to get into that. So he was born in the hour of the dragon, which apparently is 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., in the year of the dragon, according to the Chinese Zodiac. So 1940. He was born in San Francisco, but he grew up in Hong Kong. And his father was a pretty prolific actor in Hong Kong cinema. Bruce actually appeared in his first movie at three months because he was always kind of hanging around film sets. And by the time he was 18, he'd appeared in almost 20 films. Uh, I think his first speaking role was at the age of six uh, in one of of, uh, his father's movies. So growing up in China, Bruce, got, Bruce was a bit of a troublemaker. So he got into, he would get into fights and, you know, he was in these movies, but he wasn't a great student and he, uh, he would kind of, you know, he, he liked to fight. He always liked to fight. And at some point he'd gotten into a fight and he had beaten up a couple of kids from the neighborhood and then they kind of jumped him back later and, and beat him up pretty good. So he ended up studying Wing Chun Kung Fu. From a guy named Yip Man, who is a big, famous folk hero in China. There's a bunch of movies about him, although none of them are like very historically accurate. But he's like a mm-hmm. he's a he's a, a folk hero in China. I think there's a Donnie Yen has done like five different Yip Man movies now, and and they're great, but they're kind of pretty yeah, out there. Don't in take terms them of, as
4: historical documentation.
3: Yes, he, it is the name yes. of a character from history who was very good at kung fu and lived generally in the time period that those movies are representing him, but. <laughs> Um, yes, you know, yes. <laughs> he, they, they take a lot of creative license. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Bruce starts studying fighting and Kung Fu and and he's got an aptitude for it. Um, in 1958, at the age of 17, he becomes the Hong Kong boxing champion. He knocks out three fighters, all of them in the first round, to win the title. And that same year, he also wins the Hong Kong cha-cha dance competition. Which,
4: hey, he's got the moves, he's
3: got the moves. And there's a lot of stuff. So his, his father was an actor, but his father had kind of come up in uh, the Hong Kong opera. And so there is always mm-hmm. kind of a lot of crossover between, uh, you know, martial arts and dancing and just being able to move your body athletically.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: I, I think these two things kind of go hand in hand. They always say that when... Um, NHL players are talking about their hockey careers they start off in figure skating before they ever pick up a stick because it's good you have to know how to skate before you can you know shoot a putt yeah Anyway, so uh, he is uh, 1958, 1959. Bruce is kind of this young punk teenager kind of guy. He's, you know, he's doing fighting school and he is he's doing dance competitions, but he's he's getting into some fights. Uh, There is I I saw one thing referencing that he had joined a street gang called the Tigers of Junction Street. Another one saying that like he was fighting against various other street gangs. Um, But in 1959, he gets in trouble because he he beats up the son of like a pretty powerful triad leader in Hong Kong.
4: And the triads are Chinese organized crime syndicates.
3: Yeah, basically Chinese mafia. And um, yeah. beating up the son of a powerful guy in that uh, realm is is not a great thing for you. And at one point, even um, one of the local like Hong Kong police officers that patrols the streets in Bruce's neighborhood, went to his dad and was like, look, um, he's getting into fights with some bad people. He's getting into a lot of fights. He's hurting some of these other kids. Mm -hmm. If he gets into one more fight, I got to drag him in and arrest him. And that's going to put, you know, That's going to put Bruce down some pretty bad roads.
4: Yes. Yeah. So he needs to skip town.
3: He needs to skip town. So his dad sends him first to San Francisco to go live with his sister uh, and then eventually up to Seattle where Bruce enrolls in the University of Washington he's studying philosophy and drama and I think it's it's funny to mention that he got a C in gymnastics which seems like really he just shows you like his commitment to like the school I guess he was not a great Uh student I think he had like a 1.8 GPA I read somewhere but he was also working on his book at the time he was writing a book about the philosophy of kung fu and uh, he was training students in martial arts Uh, first he was doing it for free it was just kind of his friends and people nearby that like might have wanted some training in kung fu but he is at the university of washington and he is he's training students He's having a little bit of a hard time making ends meet money wise because he's not charging any of his friends for lessons. And eventually his friends are kind of like, no, dude, actually, you're awesome at this. Why don't you charge us money and we can pay you to do this mm-hmm. so that yeah. this is the thing you can do? Yeah. And he says, OK, OK. And so he opens a school uh, that's called the Jin Fang Kung Fu Institute. Yeah. And Jin Fang was his uh, Chinese name.
4: And yeah, his family name which we pronounce as Li, uses the same Chinese character as the last name of Jet Li, who spells it L-I. And even though the Americanized versions of their names are spelled differently, they're still using the same Chinese character, Li, which translates to plum or plum tree. Jet Li chose a different spelling of his name for his Americanized version because he didn't want to be associated with the Bruce exploitation actors which we'll talk about a little bit later um, actors who were trying to ride the wave of Bruce Lee fame yes and would use creative versions of Bruce Lee's name even yes as their and stage names we will,
3: we will get to them a little bit later as well yeah. um yeah. but you know over the course of his career Bruce is a is a teacher uh, for his entire life he's always training um i think he meets his wife while he's training people in this area here in at the, in Seattle, but throughout the course of his life, after he goes to Hollywood, even beyond, um, he's always a teacher. And he ends up actually teaching some pretty big name American actors martial arts. Yeah. So Steve McQueen, James Garner, James Coburn, George Lazenby, uh, they all take uh, martial arts lessons from, from Bruce Lee at various points during their careers to help them, you know, have a better stage presence and help them have some more interesting and better fights uh, on screen which is cool.
4: Yeah. So he was among other things a teacher and clearly a successful one. He opened kung fu schools in California and believe it or not this was controversial. So on the one hand he had his friends saying shut up and take our money, you know, let us give you money to teach us how to do kung fu, but some leaders in the Chinese American community were upset at the fact that Bruce Lee was teaching kung fu and this included some martial arts teachers in the Seattle area. And it wasn't the competition per se. It was more that they viewed Kung Fu as an important part of Chinese culture. And they thought that it should be taught only to people who were Chinese or of Chinese descent. So how did they settle this? Well, did they take him to court? No, they decided to have a Kung Fu off. (laughs) And the other teachers, the, the ones who thought teaching Chinese martial arts should be exclusively for Chinese students. They got together and they sent their best guy, Wong Jack Man.
3: Yeah. So this is 1964 and Bruce I mean we will see this right but bruce is not mm-hmm. does not take well to being challenged bruce has a little bit of an ego on him he's got a little bit of arrogance to him which is understandable because he is better than everybody that he encounters right he doesn't get beat up ever mm-hmm. again after after he starts uh, training with Hitman, and um and he says oh, okay yeah you want to okay well, we can do this kung fu off i'm totally down for it and so in 1964 him and wong jack man are gonna fight I'm just going to give you Bruce Lee's personal accounting of what happens in this encounter. So we had talked about, um, I believe before we had talked about the Chevalier de Saint-Georges and how the different schools were going to mm-hmm. duel and have a battle to see which school was superior. And, um, and Jacques Man is, is older than Bruce Lee and we're more... more trained and more experienced, he's a grandmaster. And Bruce Lee is kind of this up-and-coming, you know, 20-something punk kid who wants to teach martial arts and they're gonna fight. And um, here's what Bruce said about this fight in an interview he gave to Black Belt Magazine. I'd gotten into a fight in San Francisco with a Kung Fu cat. And after a brief encounter, the son of a bitch started to run. I chased him and like a fool, kept punching him behind his head and back. Soon my fist began to swell from hitting his hard head. Right then I realized Wing Chun was not too practical and began to alter my way of fighting. So Long Jack Man goes on to train people who like MMA fighters who fight on the ultimate fighting Mm -hmm. championship circuit. Yeah. But not only was Bruce Lee kind of disillusioned with the martial arts style because the Grandmaster he had defeated in like three minutes. Mm -hmm. He was also kind of mad at himself because he thought it should have taken less time to beat this guy up.
4: He's hard on himself. He's a perfectionist.
3: I mean, I think that's the only way to get to the level that he attained, right? He is extremely hard on himself. Yeah. And so he kind of gets really, really into training and also into the philosophy of martial arts. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Pat, have you ever done any kind of martial arts, taken like a martial arts class or anything like that?
4: No, I haven't really. But you have been, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. So I took martial arts for maybe 10 years um, Mm -hmm. when I was in high school and college and stuff. So I have spent a lot of time with it and, and, you know, it's not just about how to defend yourself if somebody tries to beat you up or how to beat up your enemies. There is a whole like philosophy of behind this. And, and I think you, we do encounter this a little bit in ancient Greece, where you, you, there's some kind of combination mm-hmm. of philosophy, art and sport, mm-hmm. you know, kind of it's a mindset. And, and there's some really yeah. cool stuff that Bruce Lee comes up with here. So what he creates in 1965 is a martial arts style called Jeet Kune Do. Bruce is kind of ahead of his time in that he's studying anatomy and physics and philosophy and trying to put all of that into his fighting style. Uh, so Jeet Kundo is the the way of the intercepting fist. Bruce had kind of grown up doing Wing Chun and boxing. But what he wanted to do was he calls it the form of no form. Mm-hmm. He says that, quote, I, I hope to free my followers from clinging to styles, patterns or molds. You
4: have to adapt. Right.
3: You have to adapt. And he says, you know, the, the idea is kind of. Uh, One of the ways it's described is that not everybody can fit into a size 42 coat. So you can't have this very rigid rules on how to how the fighting style works. And here's how you fight and here's how you do it. And you do it exactly this way every single time. You know, you got to get that coat tailored to fit you. And what Bruce mm-hmm. wants to do is kind of take things from everywhere and let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't work. Let's see what works for me versus what works for you. Mm-hmm. We got to be adaptable and open to new ideas and open to incorporating things that, you know, thinking outside the box, not just with yeah. your fighting style, but also mm-hmm. just in life to be adaptable. And um, and I think there's some really cool stuff uh, with that.
4: Yeah. Sounds like teaching, actually. Yes. You know, you, you have ways and philosophies and methods of teaching but ultimately you have to find a way that works for the particular students in front of you in a particular moment. Yeah,
3: exactly. It's an it's an eclectic Philosophy And eclectic as in like capital E, eclecticism, which Mm -hmm. is just like adaptability, right? What, you know, there is no, there is no schematic for how to do this. Don't, you can't do it exactly like this every time and it will always work. Mm -hmm. He gives a great interview and it's one that you'll see a lot if you do any kind of research on him or YouTubing on him or whatever. And he says, be formless, shapeless, like water. This is what it is, Okay. I said, empty your mind, be formless,
2: shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow
3: or it can crash. Be water, my friend. And that was kind of the strategy he took towards fighting and towards training. He was extremely hardcore about working out and training from the very beginning. As far as training goes, Bruce Lee is kind of famous for having all of these crazy, weird, innovative, I guess, uh, Mm -hmm. training regimens. He would do, you know, we all do push-ups, sit-ups, that kind of thing when we're trying to work out at home without any tools or anything. Mm -hmm. But he would do two-finger push-ups, thumb and forefinger. And he could, it was said he could do something on the order of 200 of those in a row. He would do some with like, he would do one hand with his other hand behind his back. So just off the two fingers, or um, he could do both thumbs. He would do pushups like that. You know, one arm chin-ups. He would fill heavy bags with gravel so that he could punch and kick them and toughen up his knuckles and his feet. And also because regular heavy bags were too light for him. And if you watch (laughs) those videos of him punching these heavy bags, and it's a a heavy bag. It's the kind of thing you see in like a boxing gym and you you can watch a video of of a boxer punching a punching bag then you watch Bruce Lee and the thing is flying all over the place. He was not a huge guy. He was super ripped. I mean, as you can tell, because he's always kind of shirtless in his movies, but he wasn't a very like huge guy like height and weight wise, but he would generate just unbelievable amounts of power that uh, are kind of were kind of unprecedented. He had a his diet was generally raw blended hamburger meat. (laughs) which just, Yum. yeah, sounds awful. <laughs> well,
4: I guess, I guess we could call it steak tartare or something like that, or carpaccio.
3: There uh, are
4: fancy, fancy names for raw meat.
3: <laughs> you don't sound convinced. <laughs>
4: no, I'm not. But But it worked for him.
3: Yes, it worked for him. It worked for him. He had an exercise called the dragon flag where he would just lay on his back and like, but he could lift his entire body up from like just his shoulder and the back of his head would touch the ground and he'd grab onto something and he could lift the entire rest of his body up off, off the mat and hold it for seconds or minutes at a time. He liked to train his reflexes and his manual dexterity by throwing grains of rice up in the air and catching them with chopsticks. He was apparently extremely talented at doing this, Ooh. and that might have been the inspiration for, you know, Mr. Miyagi catching the fly with chopsticks and the Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's off doing all of these things. He is training really hard. He's creating his own martial art. He's teaching it to people he's not supposed to be teaching it to. He's kind of a rebel. And in 1964, he gets the opportunity to demonstrate a lot of this stuff at the World karate championships in Long Beach, California. He goes up on stage and he demonstrates these two-finger push-ups and the dragon flag and his workout style. And Pat, he demonstrates a couple of other unique skills that he has.
4: Yeah, including the famous one-inch punch. So imagine Bruce Lee standing in front of you, like very in front of you, very close in front of you, and you, okay, I say you as if this applies to anyone, But a general member of the public shouldn't be doing this. You should be a trained martial arts person because it takes some stamina to be the the recipient of this move from Bruce Lee. So you're standing there and Bruce Lee is standing in front of you and behind you is a chair. And Bruce Lee extends his arm out and puts his hand just there in the air, very still, right in front of your abs, right in front of your stomach, and... He's perfectly still, and then something happens. He curls his fingers into a fist and then just thrusts it one inch into your gut. Bam! You go flying back six feet into the chair, and that's the one-inch punch. He's able to generate the energy from his legs and the way he stands and channel that into his fingers it's called fajin or explosive power and bam there you go flying back into the chair
3: and there's video of this these guys like they're they're martial arts like experts they're there for the world karate championships they're wearing their their geese mm-hmm. and um their black belts and and these guys get hit and they hit that chair and the chair slides across the floor or these dudes kind of hit the chair and bounce out and hit the ground like they don't land mm-hmm. like if they don't land perfectly on it or or if they're trying to like fight it too hard they uh they hit the ground and yeah. and Bruce Lee gets up there and he does these demonstrations in front of I mean a humongous audience of you know martial arts maniacs right people who are super into this stuff he comes back in 67 and he does it again at a different world karate championship he's got a move called the unstoppable punch where he got the world champion, Vic Moore, who is also a badass. He stands there, and Bruce Lee stands six feet away from him and is like, block me before I punch you in the face. And <laughs> and he he gets he's so fast. There's video of this, and I absolutely recommend that you watch it. Bruce covers six feet and gets his fist in this guy's face, and the dude barely moves. The dude doesn't flinch until Bruce has already stopped with his fist an inch from this guy's face. And this is a world karate <laughs> champion. He had just beaten yeah, up like yeah. all of the greatest fighters in the world. Vic Moore got annoyed and was like, give me another try. Mm-hmm. And Bruce gave him six. Mm. And he did the same thing every single time and um Vic Moore couldn't couldn't block it. Wow. And then he tried it with a bunch of other people. It was any other volunteers and nobody could stop this. It was the unstoppable punch and that's a Bruce Lee thing that he was famous for just kind of showing up at the World Karate Championships in 64 and 66, not competing in them, and then giving a demonstration that was just like, I'm Mm -hmm. the best one here, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. He would do another trick later on where um, he would stand the same thing six feet away from you. He'd tell you to put a quarter in your palm and hold your arm out as far as maximum extension of your hand and put the coin in the palm of your hand And he would say, don't let me steal this quarter. Close your fist, close your hand before I take this quarter from you. (laughs) Lightning flash, you'd get your hand closed. He'd hold the quarter up. And when you opened your fist, you would see you had a penny in your hand. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And so that's that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. And his demonstrations at these uh, karate tournaments, especially the one in 1964, end up, being kind of a springboard for him to enter Hollywood and enter film because stories of this guy uh, up until this point he's kind of just basically famous in the martial arts world but you know he's in California things are Mm -hmm. are going well like he's kind of a celebrity He's, he's you know the best of the best at this and Hollywood starts calling for him. And when we get back, we are going to get into uh, the beginnings of Bruce Lee's film career.
1: Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great tasting, all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today.
3: Okay, and welcome back. We are talking about Bruce Lee, who up until this point in the story has been kind of a martial arts celebrity, and he is about to become a a international film and TV celebrity. So in 1966, um, season one of The Green Hornet comes out. The Green Hornet is a a kind of a superhero type of show. The Green Hornet is a detective, and Bruce Lee, uh, all of his success with the demonstrations he's put on at these Long Beach International Karate tournaments, they, they get him a role as Kato, who is the chauffeur for the Green Hornet, kind of like the Robin to the Green Hornet's Batman. And I use that analogy because it's by the same producers. So the guys Mm -hmm. who created Green Hornet were also the guys who created the Adam West Batman show. So kind of the iconic moment from this uh, that kind of introduced Bruce Lee to the world is there's a bit where Cato, there's a light hanging from the ceiling and Bruce Lee as Cato enters and he does a jumping front kick and breaks the light with his foot. That at the time was pretty mind-blowing. We're a little bit desensitized to seeing really badass martial arts in movies. We've seen Jason Statham mm-hmm. movies, we've seen The Matrix, we've seen stuff like that. But at the time, 1966, this show was on primetime TV back-to-back with Adam West's Batman. So if you think about the fights in that series, the the pow, Thwack! zap, you know, mm-hmm. guys wrestling around. You mentioned Star Trek. This is like Captain Kirk time period with the double hand mm-hmm. hammer fists and the open hand karate chop. And, uh, you know, what's in the movies right now? Thunderball, Goldfinger, like that time period, the James Bond stuff, which he wasn't doing a whole lot of martial arts. I mean, I'd wager that probably the most badass fight sequence in television or film history up until this point might have been... Maybe the train fight from uh, from Russia with Love, where Sean Connery mm-hmm. fights that guy in the train compartment. But that's yeah. nothing like jumping front kick, flying side kick, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah,
4: no, yeah, it's good stage fighting, but it's not this next level stuff that all of a sudden Bruce Lee is putting on the scene.
3: Yeah, and, you know, we had action movies. But there There's a lot of cowboy movies and war movies, a lot of shooting. Most of the fighting was punching and stuff. You didn't see a lot of kicks. You didn't see a lot of the speed that Bruce Lee brings to the table. And we've talked about the the unstoppable punch and the stealing the quarter. He was
4: fast.
3: He was extremely fast. And that actually caused a problem on the set of Green Hornet, because in 1966, right now we can do whatever, 60 frames per second. We can do HD, you know, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. But movie camera in 1966, Mm. it was lucky if it could hit 24 frames per second. And according to legend, Bruce Lee could punch nine times in one second. So they said that there was footage from season one of The Green Hornet where it looks like Bruce Lee is standing perfectly still and everybody around him is falling down because (laughs) the camera couldn't catch him he was moving too fast and it looked funny on camera so what Mm. they ended up having to do was to make him slow down and he still looks fast if you watch reruns from the show he still looks really fast but he had to slow down to like 50 percent speed so that the the camera could catch him doing the things that he was doing which is just awesome yeah so the greenhorn it only runs for one season and uh it just doesn't catch on and it it gets canceled and bruce Lee is in Hollywood now and he's doing some bit roles here and there. And, um, you know, one of the these American producers says, you know, you kind of have this cred of being an American film and TV star now. Why don't you go back to Hong Kong, make a couple of movies there? Hong Kong has, you know, it's a thing worth talking about with Bruce Lee is that he didn't invent martial arts movies he wasn't the first ever kung fu movie star hong kong has been doing these films for a while but but they just didn't have an american audience at the time
4: exactly yeah
3: so his producer in the states says why don't you go back to hong kong make a couple movies there and then i can leverage that if you make a movie in hong kong i can leverage it into something that i can sell in the states okay why not Bruce goes back to Hong Kong. He talks a little bit with the Shaw brothers and ends up signing with a company called Golden Harvest and he makes a movie called The Big Boss and it blows up. It makes him a huge celebrity in China and and eventually in the US as well. And it's the first of like kind of the five main Bruce Lee movies that everybody talks about when they think about this guy. So he did Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Return of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon and Game of Death. Those are the five big ones and I had talked about Midnight Kung Fu, but, like, they wouldn't show any of these movies at Midnight Kung Fu because it's not cheesy enough and it's too mainstream or whatever, <laughs> you uh-huh. know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know, Pat, have you seen any of these? You watched a lot not of Bruce Lee really, movies?
4: Not really. A few clips here and there, yeah. They hold
3: up okay, especially Enter the Dragon. They hold up fine, but it's, you know, it's it's hard to... If you hadn't seen, say, for instance, The Big Boss, and you've watched a lot of... Avengers and the Matrix, it's it's kind of hard to go back and watch some of the older stuff.
4: But put it in historical perspective, nothing comes out of a vacuum. And one of the reasons we have these moves in the Matrix and the Avengers movies is because we've had Bruce Lee and other martial artists on screen paving the way.
3: Right. You know, before Enter the Dragon, Sean Connery is kind of punching a guy in a train compartment, After Bruce Lee, Daniel Craig is doing judo throws and and that sort of thing. So, you know, uh, this is an interesting thing when you're studying history of of any kind, right? Even, you know, say sports history, you have Steph Curry, who does all of these, you know, amazing dribbling, uh, amazing ball control dribbling techniques. But he grew up watching Dr. J and Dr. J's stuff doesn't look as good now, but it's because... When he did it, nobody had ever seen it before. And then Steph Curry grew up learning, Mm -hmm. like watching Dr. J and trying to emulate that and build upon that. So everything kind of builds and grows based on what came before.
4: And in addition to the martial arts moves, we also have nunchucks being introduced to American audiences. Yes. People in the States hadn't really seen nunchucks.
3: Yeah, that was a pretty new thing. That was a pretty new thing here. And it's awesome. I love nunchucks.
4: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
3: I suck at them, but I like them. (laughs) And we see the influence of a lot of these movies today. So Mortal Kombat came out of Enter the Dragon. Uh, The old Kung Fu Master game came from Game of Death. You know, fighting game heroes to this day always kind of seem to make some Bruce Lee noises. So Bruce goes and he makes these movies and they end up you know, getting big in in Hong Kong and China, but also in the US. And he, it's how he kind of introduces the Western world to martial arts, and like you said, nunchucks, and and fighting movies, and even some, like Jackie Chan's first movie was as a stuntman. He gets punched in the head during Enter the Dragon. Um, Samuel Hung is introduced to the Western audiences. Uh, I have a personal uh, love of Jim Kelly as Black Belt Jones, which was from Enter the Dragon as well, but then he ended up getting a couple of action movies of his own. And even, uh, it's even how the world was introduced to Chuck Norris.
4: Yeah. And Chuck Norris, in a way, is the canonical badass. I say this because there have been Chuck Norris memes going around the internet for. I don't know, a decade and a half at least. And maybe they existed even before the internet. You know, there's a picture of Chuck Norris on a, a landline and it says, Chuck Norris catches all the Pokemon from a landline. <laughs> and, you know, and then there's a picture of Chuck Norris with thumbs up. Chuck Norris hit 11 out of 10 targets with nine bullets. <laughs> and, you know, it's supposed to be goofy. Yeah. But, but I'm saying this. To say this is the reputation Chuck Norris has in a way he's the canonical badass and Bruce Lee comes along.
3: Yeah, and Bruce Lee kind of introduced him to the world. At the time, Chuck Norris was just, he was just, but he was a world karate champion, but he wasn't an actor. Bruce and him had been training together a little bit. He got Chuck norris uh his first acting role in return of the dragon it's also known as the way of the dragon Mm -hmm. it's the only movie that bruce lee wrote and directed uh he wrote directed and stars in it and got chuck norris to be the bad guy in it chuck norris begrudgingly was like do I have to get beat up? And Bruce is like, yeah, you got to get beat up. And Chuck was like, all right, well, I'm going to give you a good fight, though. Okay, we can do that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really like, you know, the most Bruce Lee gets beat up in any of his movies is in this like fantastic martial arts sequence at the end of Return of the Dragon. Yeah. Chuck, of course, goes on to be one of America's first like, you know, American born martial arts heroes and kind of the iconic one, as you mentioned. But it's just a it's a cool story.
4: Yeah. And he, in a way, got his start through Bruce Lee. Yeah,
3: exactly. And and a lot of people did, right? So so Yeah. Bruce is not just groundbreaking in the fact that he was, you know, bringing martial arts to American audiences, but he's also inspirational to a lot of he's an asian american lead he's an asian man leading a movie right that is successful yeah. in the us and he's the first yeah. real asian movie star first real martial arts hero and he's inspirational to a lot of people who kind of came after him yeah right he kind of paved the way for basically a non white person to be the lead in a movie which he got a lot of blowback on of
4: course yeah that's how things worked yeah
3: but after this like you have like i said hong kong's been making martial arts movies for a long time and so maybe Mm -hmm. not even just in front of the camera but what you end up with after this is hollywood directors and producers are like we need to do martial arts in our movies we need to step up the fighting in our movies and so they bring mm-hmm. over Hong Kong uh, action heroes, choreographers, stunt directors and you start to see an influx of you know diversity in Hollywood yeah. cinema of people coming over and getting into positions they that were closed to them before.
4: Yeah, totally. And Bruce Lee is playing an action hero. He's not playing a stereotypical villain. Yes. which was one of the stereotypes for roles that Asian American actors were kind of steered into playing before this.
3: Yeah. And like, as we saw with Christopher Lee playing Fu Manchu, a lot of times, like they Mm -hmm. cast a white actor in that Asian role, right, as the bad guy, which is just bad all around. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so this is kind of groundbreaking and it, it opens a lot of doors for people to come come past it. The the most successful movie that Bruce Lee had in the in the States, and the first real like American major release of a martial arts movie was Enter the Dragon in 1973. Sadly, Bruce Lee uh wasn't able to attend the the premiere. He passed away six days before its release. Uh, he had a cerebral edema and died at age thirty-two, uh just kind of right in the prime of his life.
4: Yeah. And There were a lot of theories circulating his untimely death. We're not going to deal with them here.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I really don't want to get into any of the conspiracy theory stuff that circulates around Bruce Lee's death. There is, except to say that maybe there's like a fascination with that sort of thing of, of people who were taken out of the world in their prime, right? The James Deans, Mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe, Jim Morrison, Heath Ledger, you know, um, even a JFK, right? Somebody who was kind of at the height of their, like just huge rising star and then Mm -hmm. then it's over. Um, He left behind a wife and two kids. One of them was Brandon Lee, who played the crow before Mm -hmm. his own um, untimely death on the set of, uh, of that movie. Enter the Dragon goes on to gross $400 million worldwide, uh, becomes a huge hit, and it kind of creates a whole new genre of like copycat, you know, martial arts movies. Uh, and that's kind of what you were alluding to before when you were talking about Bruce-sploitation. right? Em? Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And some of these um, Bruce-sploitators or Bruce Lee imitators actually would use variations on the name Bruce Lee as their stage name, misspelling it creatively kind of reminds me of Annie Oakley and Annie Oakley exploitation. Oh right, the Annie Oakley being arrested
3: for cocaine possession. (laughs) Well,
4: yeah, yeah, and even before people were getting arrested for cocaine, there were people using, uh, there were other women using kind of versions of her name as their stage names, and they just wanted to ride the crest of popularity. So. But we're here to talk about actual Bruce Lee, not his imitators.
3: Yes, but he was such a cultural phenomenon that it inspired imitators, which is kind of worth mentioning. Yes. Um, the final movie of his career, Game of Death, is is basically, it's a Bruce Lee movie, but it's also bruce mm-hmm. He He had filmed parts of it before he left to go do Enter the Dragon. And the film company was trying to capitalize on his success and they finished the movie with only 15 minutes of Bruce Lee in the movie. Only 15 minutes of him make the final cut. They used body doubles and they used um, stock footage. They used clips from other mm-hmm. movies to try to finish this thing. Nowadays, they just like CG it. Yeah, like
4: with Star Wars.
3: One of the only bits that exists exists from that is that fight with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was one of Bruce's students in real life. Yeah. And, and that's like that's iconic.
4: <laughs> that's iconic. Yeah, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a badass in his own right, but that's a story for another day.
3: Absolutely, absolutely great. Like yeah. a big-time sports badass. Uh, Kareem's awesome. Yeah, this is the you know the yellow jumpsuit, and he fights Kareem, and mm-hmm. Bruce is maybe five eight, and Kareem is like seven two, so the fight is is really impressive.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But yeah, that movie was kind of has a, has a place in the Bruce Lee library, uh, and it's not necessarily a, a really one. One, because of how much the studio manipulated his likeness um, to try to... I think at yeah. one point in it, he he gets plastic surgery to look different, and that's how they get like the Bruce Lee impersonator to, you know, if they have to show his face. It, it, it's not great, but that scene is great. Yeah,
4: it's, it was sounds like it was slapped together.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think about Star Wars mm-hmm. where they put the CGI faces, de-age people, and all that stuff. That's how they do it now. And, yeah, and, which yeah. I argue is not that much more tasteful than what they were doing back then. But you know, bringing Peter Cushing mm-hmm. back from the dead to play Grand Moff Tarkin again—I I don't know how I feel about that. But... <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, but um, it's a thing that Hollywood does, however we may feel about it.
3: Yes, everybody wants to capitalize. I mean, even Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino did him extremely dirty in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But he also like ripped off the yellow tracksuit and the one inch punch for Kill Bill. So who knows what's happening there? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Bruce was a pioneer for for Asian actors, for stunt coordinators, choreographers. For martial arts in general, um, I think Dana White of the UFC once referred to him as the father of mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. The Gracie family, who are very influential in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they talk about him as one of the greats. Mm-hmm. And not just because he was doing some martial arts movie stuff, but he was also doing uh, you know, leg locks. He does an arm bar and Enter the Dragon. He was doing mm-hmm. groundwork. He was really into the science of fighting and, and uh, adapting a little bit of everything from the different styles. And that is kind of how MMA works today. And he was a he was also, like you know, in addition to all of that, he was a philosopher and a writer. He wrote and directed um, Way of the Dragon, as I said. And he also pitched a show called Warrior when he was um, uh, towards the end of his of his life. It was a show that was going to mm-hmm. be about a traveling monk who was going around during the Old West and having adventures. Yeah. Pat, you had mentioned earlier that your dad was a, uh, a big Kung Fu fan and Bruce's pitch was rejected because they didn't want any Asian leads in a TV show. They didn't think that was going to sell. Gosh. But then the next year they came out with a show called Kung Fu starring David Carradine. And it was a hugely yeah. successful series.
4: Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what I grew up with on in the background. Yeah.
3: And uh, they actually made a show called Warrior now. It's on HBO and they do credit him as the creator of it. And it does have Asian... American lead actors, which I think is cool. Yeah. So that's the story of Bruce Lee. He was more than just an actor. He was uh, a martial artist. He was kind of a groundbreaking person and and a really fascinating, um, badass character and uh, broke down a lot more doors than just like the physical ones. (laughs) Indeed all right well uh i think that is all we have for today uh we really hope that you you guys uh liked the show and please don't forget to subscribe and and share this with your friends because that really helps us out a lot thank you guys so much as always for listening and we're looking forward to seeing you on the next one
4: stay badass but be water
3: i said empty your mind be formless shapeless be water, my friend.
4: Badass of the Week is an iHeart radio podcast produced by High Five Content. Executive producers are Andrew Jacobs, me, Pat Larish, and my co host, Ben Thompson. Writing is by me and Ben. Story editing is by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Fivs. Mixing and music and sound design is by Jude Brewer. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeart. Badass of the Week is based on the website, badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. If you want to reach out with questions, ideas, you can email us at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, follow, listen, and tell your friends and your enemies if you want, as we'll be back next week with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,